Hello, everyone. Welcome. I'm going to be reading from the Gospel of Mark. Our text is Mark chapter 14, verses 66 through 72. Mark 14, 66 through 72. Hear God's holy word. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came And seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene, Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know you nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Holy Spirit of God, we thank you so much for feeding our hungry hearts. For Lord, we are hungry and thirsty this morning. Whether we know it or not, we are hungry for your word, for your truth, for a reminder of your grace. Lord, our world is so filled with pain and trouble and sorrow. And we come here this morning to hear words of hope and life and purpose and meaning. And so, Lord, we pray that you will use the words that we just heard, that you inspired. Use them to shape us, Lord, to change us, to convict us, to uh, uh, conform us to the image of Christ, we pray to help every single one of us today to have that relationship with you that you died to give us. Thank you for Palm Sunday. Thank you for being with us this day. Bless our study, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. It's uh, great to be back with you. I bring you greetings from University Presbyterian Church in Orlando, where I serve. And uh, I must say, one of these days that I come down here, I'm going to coax your musicians to leave you and come to our church. (laughs) I love that song they did during the offering. But uh, welcome back to this church, and it's good to see all of you. I want to take you back to the day when this passage of Scripture actually took place. As was said earlier today, we are in Holy Week as a church around the world. This is Holy Week. And what we are remembering is uh, all of the events that happened between the triumphal entry into Jerusalem by Jesus on Palm Sunday and then, of course, leading up to the climactic event of the resurrection a week from today when you all and we as well will celebrate Resurrection Sunday. But in between those two events happened a number of things, one of which was 
recounted here in this passage of Mark chapter 14. So let's go back to this day. Uh, In fact, I'll take you even further back, a few hours before this text happened. It was the wee hours of the morning in Jerusalem. The sun has not yet come up, and Jesus has been awake all night. The night before, Jesus had the Passover meal with His disciples. Then they went out, they left that room, and went to the Garden of Gethsemane. He took Peter, James, and John with Him into the midst of the garden. And while they were falling asleep, Jesus was wrestling in prayer and sweating drops of blood, the Scriptures tell us. Because Jesus knew that very soon He would drink the cup of the wrath of God that was due your and my sin. And then a large crowd, a large crowd of religious leaders and Jews and Roman soldiers showed up. And Judas Iscariot, he had led them to Jesus in exchange for 30 pieces of silver. They arrested Jesus, they tied his hands behind his back and took him to the house of Caiaphas, the high priest, where Jesus was interrogated and falsely accused of sedition judged worthy of death, and then later crucified. But when all of those things were happening, where were the disciples? Well, you'd have to look up above the scripture that I read today into verse 50. It says that they all fled. They all left Jesus and fled away, except for one man, Peter, Simon Peter. Impulsive, impetuous, bold, brash, self-confident, emotional, zealous Peter. Peter, it says in verse 54 of this chapter, followed at a distance, followed Jesus at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. But what Peter did there is phenomenally hard to believe. When I read this passage and listen to this story over and over again every year, I just find it stupendous that this man Peter denied Jesus. Not once, not twice, but at least three times. Some scholars believe it was six times or more that Peter actually denied knowing Jesus Christ. Well... I want us to look at two things today. Uh, very simple outline, if you're going to follow along on your, in your notes. I want to talk to you about, first of all, how fickle, that's a word we don't usually say very often, how fickle is the human heart, but then how free is the grace of God. All right, so let's dive in. I want you to notice with me first how fickle is the human heart. Simon Peter, you know, had some really great qualities. He's a man I think most of us would love to meet. One day we will. But he had some great qualities. Who wouldn't want to be like Peter? Who wouldn't want to be known as the rock? Peter was a choleric, full of zeal, a man of action, a man of great passion. It was Peter, of course, who walked on water 
for a few seconds. It was Peter who understood, perhaps better than any of the other disciples, the real identity of Jesus. You remember the time when Jesus said, Who do people say that I am? And then who do you say that I am? And Peter knew. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter nailed it. Peter was the spokesman for the twelve on so many different occasions. He was one of Jesus' three closest disciples, Peter and then James and John. He was a man's man, you might say. He was a leader of leaders. So we admire Peter a lot for all of these things. Did you know that every time there's a list of the disciples in the New Testament, Peter is named first? So there's a lot that we could say good about Peter, a lot that we might admire about this man. Peter had professed undying loyalty to Jesus. He said, I'll lay down my life for you, Jesus, in John 13. He said, even though they all fall away, I will not, he says in verse 29 of this chapter. Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you said Peter in verse 31. And when those Roman soldiers came out and arrested Jesus in the garden, it was Peter who drew his sword and cut off the ear of the high priest's servant in the garden of Gethsemane. So I'm guessing that if Jesus had wanted a fight, Peter would have been right there in the middle of it, slashing away. But now, here in this courtyard, the courtyard of the high priest... Peter denied Jesus. That word deny, what's that mean? It's in verses 68 and 70. It means to disown. It means to not acknowledge. It means to refuse to be associated with someone, to repudiate any relationship that you might have had with someone. Think of that. That's awful, isn't it? That's awful. Have you ever been denied? Has someone you loved, you thought loved you, ever not acknowledged you, ignored you, pretended or acted like you didn't even exist? I know it was a long time ago, but when I was in high school, I had a girlfriend named Susan. And I thought I would one day marry her. We were that close. We did everything together. But for some inexplicable reason, Susan decided she didn't want to have anything more to do with me. My senior year of high school was horrible. It's everybody else's favorite year, right? It was my worst year because my favorite person denied me. I still to this day suffer from that. It took a chunk of my heart out. Thankfully, I have a pretty good wife named Susie. (laughs) but Susan hurt me terribly. What about you? What about you? I'm glad I can laugh about it now because it was horrible then. Have you ever been denied? Jesus had predicted that this would happen. He knew it. He knew it all along. He knew Peter's heart. Earlier in chapter 14, Jesus had said to His disciples, you will all fall away. But Peter protested, no, 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 Jesus, you you don't know me. I'm the one who's going to stick with you through thick and thin. Even though they fall away, I will not. But that's when Jesus said, Peter, this very night, 
before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. And that's exactly what happened. Peter comes into this courtyard. He joins some people who were sitting around a fire. And this young girl, I don't know, 12, 14 years old, maybe something like that. This young girl who had let him in at the gate keeps staring at Peter like there's something about him that she recognizes. Has this ever happened to you? You're in a restaurant or you're somewhere walking around and you see somebody and you think, I know that person. I just can't place him or I just don't remember her name. Well, that's the way this young girl felt. She thinks she knows him. It's dark though, right? It's dark, so she's not sure. But the more she sees the light of the fire playing on the face of Peter, she's sure of it. And so she comes over to him and says, you, you were with that man, that man from Nazareth, that man called Jesus. But Peter says, no. And it's in the form of a formal legal oath in usage at the time. When I was growing up, my mom often told me, Mike, don't you dare swear. Well, Peter swore. It was an oath. I swear I don't know that man. I don't even, I don't know him and I don't understand what you mean. A few minutes later, she says it again to the people who were standing around. She said, this man is one of them, the followers of Jesus. And in verse 70, Peter denies it again. This time the word is in the imperfect tense in Greek. Uh, What the imperfect tense is, is that it means continuous action. It means that Peter kept saying it. You've got the wrong man. I don't know what you're talking about. I mean, different ways and different methods of saying basically the same thing. I don't know him. I don't know him. I don't know him. And pretty soon, everyone in the courtyard is talking about Peter. They say, you're not from around here, are you? We can tell by your accent. You're a Galilean, just like those disciples. And verse 71, Peter began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I don't know this man of whom you speak. And he uses the Greek word anathema. You know what anathema means, right? He's basically saying, may I be devoted to destruction if I'm lying to you? May I be cursed if I know what you're talking about? Folks, this is serious stuff. Peter can't even bring himself to say the name Jesus. Did you see that? He just calls him this man. You know, as I studied this passage, I started thinking, how does Peter compare to Judas Iscariot? Now, you know Judas Iscariot, right? Isn't it interesting that a lot of parents name their kids Peter. But I've never met a parent who has named their kid Judas Iscariot. We think so poorly of Judas Iscariot. He's awful. He's the worst. Peter was bad, but Judas Iscariot was really bad. Let's put Judas Iscariot in the same category as Adolf Hitler or something like that, right? That's kind of how we see Peter compared to Judas Iscariot. Peter was the betrayer, he's called that in verse 44. Why did did Judas do what he did? Why did 
He bring Roman soldiers and religious authorities to where he knew Jesus would be. Why did Judas Iscariot betray Jesus like that? Was he envious and jealous of Jesus perhaps? Was he greedy for material gain? You know, that 30 pieces of silver that they gave him? Was he attracted by all the notoriety and the popularity that he might gain by doing this? Yes, all of the above, I suspect. So it's easy to think that Judas' sin was worse than that of Simon Peter's. But let's think of marriage for a moment. Let's think of a husband who does to his wife what Judas did to Jesus. He betrays her. What would that mean? What would that look like? It might mean that he would run off with another woman. That's terrible. That's awful. But now let's think of that husband denying his wife, denying that he knows her, disowning her, not acknowledging her existence, acting as though she doesn't matter to him. That's doing to her what Peter did to Jesus, which is worse. (laughs) I mean, really, at the end of the day, both Peter and Judas Iscariot turned their backs on Jesus Christ the one who had loved them, the one who had washed their feet just hours before, the one who had spent his life and would soon give his life for them. Why did Peter do it? Why did Peter do it? He was afraid. That's why. That was his motive. He was afraid. First of all, he feared for his safety. This was... Listen, this was a huge crowd of armed, angry people who brought Jesus to the high priest's house. Have you ever been followed or threatened by a large, armed, angry crowd of people? Would you be scared? (laughs) Let's be honest. Of course we would. John 20 verse 19 says that after the crucifixion, the disciples gathered behind locked doors for fear of the Jews. So Peter was afraid. What do you think it's like right now in some parts of the world to be a Christian? When heads are being lopped off. When people are being thrown into cages and drowned. When Christians are being burned alive. Even as we sit here in our comfortable air-conditioned sanctuaries. Do you suppose you would feel a little fear if you were... Thrust into one of those positions? Yes, of course we would. Do you suppose any of us would be tempted for even a few moments to deny that we know Jesus if we were being forced to admit that we are Christians and if so, we're going to be beheaded? Do you suppose that fear would happen? It would to me. I suspect it would to most of us. So Peter was afraid, afraid for his very life. But not only that... I think there was a second reason for fear in Peter. He was afraid of embarrassment. He was afraid of disapproval. Disapproval by the people around him. See, here in this moment, in this courtyard, around that fire, he didn't want to be labeled as someone who believed Jesus' messianic claims. He didn't want to be known as a disciple of a Nazarene. Now, you and I don't really react emotionally when we hear that word Nazarene. But back in that day, 
To be a Nazarene was to be uh, a member of a community that was known as barbaric, lower class, unlearned, poor, inferior to the more sophisticated people of Judea. That's what Nazarenes were. I grew up in a little town in South Carolina, a little textile town. And 30 miles away from us or so was a little town called Jonesville. To be from Jonesville was to be the worst of society. And that's a little bit like what it would have been like for these folks to have been from Nazareth. You remember the statement, can anything good come from Nazareth? And so I totally get um, Peter. Do you? You ever been embarrassed for the name of Christ? You ever been in a group of people who to know you as a Christian would be a very embarrassing thing? I remember one time uh, a pipe, uh, irrigation pipe in our yard burst and water was flying all over our yard. And I was, I'm pretty naive about such things. I didn't know what to do. And so I called for help from some of my neighbor friends, and they came over. And these guys are they're big, tough, burly kind of guys. They don't go to church. They don't appear to be or act or profess to be believers. And uh, as I was sitting there talking with them after they got the thing fixed, um, it was embarrassing. You know, they know I'm a pastor. They know I'm a pastor. And for some brief moments, it flew into my head, how embarrassing, how, how weak that must look before them. I need to act different. You know, I need to be different in order to be accepted by them. Those were thoughts that went through my head. Have you ever been in that kind of situation? See, I'm at heart a real people pleaser. Sometimes I want people to like me more than I want to glorify my Lord. That was Peter's situation too. I don't know if you've ever heard this uh, little illustration, but back in the 1950s, there was a psychologist by the name of Solomon Ash, A-S-C-H. And he thought he would do an experiment. Maybe you've heard of this experiment. He gathered a bunch of people, students at Swarthmore College, and what he wanted to do was to measure the effects of peer pressure. He wondered, would people, if given enough peer pressure, agree to some ridiculous things? So what he did was he brought 123 students into this thing and separated them into groups of eight. Now, in every group of eight, only one of the students was being experimented on. The other seven were in cahoots with Solomon Ash. They knew what was going on. The eighth guy didn't. You got it? So he sat every group of eight students around a table... And he showed those students pairs of cards. And for illustration, I brought this with me this morning. Now, these are eight and a half by 11, but the cards he showed them were index card size. He showed them pairs of cards like this. And he said, take a look at the line right here on this card. Which line on the other card is it the same length of? A, B, or C? Do you understand? Okay, so 
the seven students sometimes gave the right answer. Like in this case, it would be line C. But in other cases, the students would say, the seven students would agree with each other that, let's say, it was B. And so pretend now that you're student number eight, and every one of the other students says, this line is the same length as line B. What would you do? Well, in 75% of the cases, student number eight agreed with the other guys in the circle even though it was ridiculously untrue that line B is the same length as line A. Can you believe that? Only in 25% of the cases did the participants not conform to what the other students said. That is amazing. We think, oh my goodness, if I were student number eight, I would tell the truth. I would say exactly what it was, even even if the other seven disagreed with me. Well, don't be so sure. (laughs) Because after the experiment was over, uh, when they were interviewed, most of the students said that they didn't really believe their answers, but they had gone along with the group for fear of being ridiculed or looking peculiar. Think about a time when you didn't want to be thought of as peculiar. Maybe you're in a group of people at work, or perhaps you're standing outside in your yard with a few of your neighbors like I was that day, and the conversation veers off into godlessness. Rather than speak up and say something that would give you away as a Christian, you enter into that conversation, you join the game when something inside you says you ought to speak up, and you don't. Or suppose you're on a business trip with a couple of colleagues, And you have hours together in the car driving to your destination. It's a perfect time to start a spiritual conversation. But instead of that, you hesitate. You want to be liked, approved of, and you retreat from giving witness to your Lord. Or listen, just think of your last sin. Why did you do it? Why did you choose to go over to the dark side? instead of obeying the law of God. See, we're all like Peter. Be truthful, aren't you? Aren't you sometimes like Peter, scared scared of what people think, scared of people's opinion? Fear of man is a huge idol for so many of us. Every single one of us has denied Jesus by sins of omission or sins of commission. And yet... Can I be honest with you? As I studied this passage this week, I caught myself thinking, oh, but I would be different from Peter. I would surely not have denied Jesus when I had the chance to own Him. I'd have owned my Lord. I would have gone with Jesus to jail if need be. I would have died for Jesus if need be. I caught myself thinking, I'm fundamentally different from Peter. Yeah, right. That's what Peter had said. He said, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. You know the proverb, right? Pride goes before what? A fall. Pride goes before a fall. Pride goes before destruction. And a haughty spirit before a fall. Beware then, my friends. 
Beware of bravado. Beware of hubris. Beware of bold self-confidence. You are not invincible and neither am I. Listen, if a rock like Peter could be crushed by the idol of approval, so can you. If somebody with the zeal of Peter can deny Jesus, no telling what any of us is capable of doing given the right circumstances. And it pro- listen, it probably won't be a big thing that will make you cave. It won't be a big thing. No, it's the little things. The short conversation by the water cooler. The chance meeting in an elevator. The 15 minutes at night on a computer. The small business transaction. Why, it was a young servant girl who simply asked Peter a question and he denied knowing Christ. It wasn't a religious authority. It wasn't a Roman soldier. It was a 12-year-old kid. Somebody of social insignificance. Hardly anyone to be afraid of. So what's the lesson? Don't trust yourself. You have a fickle heart. You know what Martin Luther said? Martin Luther, famous for these sound bites. (laughs) He said, I'm more afraid of my own heart than of the Pope and all his cardinals. Wow. You and I should fear our own heart just like that. So, how fickle is our hearts? But secondly, I want you to see how free is the grace of God. How free is God's grace? You know, Luke's gospel of this same story tells us something very, very interesting. Luke chapter 22 verse 61 says that after the rooster crowed that second time, Luke says that the Lord turned and looked at Peter. That is stunning. The Lord turned right after he had denied him. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Imagine the scene. Let's try to kind of paint it a little bit. Jesus has been getting the third degree upstairs in the house of the high priest. Uh, They'd asked him, are you the Christ? And he says, yes, I am. And you'll see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And they all just freak out and say, he's a blasphemer. The verdict is then rendered. Jesus deserves to die. And as they're leading Jesus out of the room and down the stairs of the house of Caiaphas to take him to the Roman governor, at that same moment, Peter is talking to these people down in the courtyard below, denying that he even knows the man Jesus. The rooster then crows, and at that very moment, Jesus' eyes meet Peter's eyes. They look straight at each other, and then Peter bursts into tears of repentance and sorrow. That look of Jesus is profound. What do you think about that look? What if you had been there? What did the look look like? What do you suppose? Was it a look of condemnation? Was it a look that said, how could you do it, Peter? After all I've done for you, how could you do that? Was it to shame Peter? Was it a scornful, punishing, judging look as though Jesus were saying, 
Well, well, Peter, I knew it all along. Don't say I didn't warn you. You've made your bed, now you're going to sleep in it. I would have been tempted to look at Peter that way. No, no, no. I saw many of you shake your heads. You know better than that. This was not a look of condemnation or shame. Romans 2 verse 4 is a verse we should all memorize. Romans 2 4 says, It's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. This was a look of kindness. It was a look of grace. Believe it or not, it was a look of grace and forgiveness and mercy. Now look, certainly Jesus was hurt by what Peter had done. No doubt about that. It did hurt him. This was a terrible sin that Peter committed against him. But nowhere is there even a hint that Jesus was now going to write Peter off. In fact, there's every indication that Peter was totally, completely, and gloriously forgiven. Turn in your Bible, if you will, over a page or two to Mark 16, and I'll show you something fantastic. Mark 16, verse 5. This is now after the resurrection. So now we're beyond Easter Sunday. Uh, After the resurrection, Jesus has risen. And in Mark 16, the women go to the tomb. And I'm sort of, this is spoiler alert, right? You're supposed to hear this next Sunday. But uh, the women go to the tomb, they find that it's empty. And then in verse uh, 4, these women look up and they see that the stone had been rolled back. And verse 5 says that they entered the tomb, they saw a young man, this is an angel, sitting on the right side dressed in a white robe. And they were alarmed. And he said to them, don't be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid Him. Now look at verse 7. But go, tell His disciples and Peter that He is going before you to Galilee. Those are two of the best words in the whole Bible. And Peter. Why would the angel be sure to say that to these women? Why did he want to get word to Peter that he was okay? It's because of the crushing weight of condemnation that we often feel when we have failed the Lord. Haven't you, felt those, haven't you experienced those times when you knew how much you had done to, to hurt the cause of Christ? You had sinned, you had broken God's commandments, and now you feel the crushing weight of that, of that sense of, of, what of what, why did I do that? And the devil comes in to whisper accusation in your ear. Your own flesh re- reacts with guilt and shame. And yet Jesus wants to say, My grace is free. Just like he wanted Peter to know that as well. And then John 21. You don't have to turn there, but in John 21, this is now uh, after Jesus has risen, he has come to the disciples and Jesus calls Peter aside and says, Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, yes, of course I love you. And Jesus says, feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Second time. Of course I love you. 
tend my lambs. Peter, do you love me? See, three times, just like Peter's denials had been at least three. What is Jesus doing in John 21? He is restoring him. He is loving him. He is giving him reminders of grace. Jesus didn't even bring up what Peter had done in the courtyard early that morning. That's something I find almost unbelievable. Jesus didn't even bring it up. I would have. I would have said, hey, Pete, that thing you did, that was not cool. <laughs> not, a good, not a good thing, Peter. Jesus didn't even bring it up. Why? Because Peter's sin was gone. Washed away by the blood shed on the cross on Good Friday. So now, now do you see the difference between Judas Iscariot and Peter? Both of them turned their backs on Jesus. But only one of them took their sin to Jesus. We're told in Matthew 27 that Judas, Judas Iscariot, changed his mind about what he had done. He changed his mind. He went to the religious leaders and he said, I shouldn't have done that. Here's your money back. See, he was trying to make up for his own sin. He went to the temple. He did not go to Jesus with his sin. Peter did. Peter didn't just change his mind. He changed his heart. He repented of his sin and took that sin to Jesus and believed that though his sin was great, God's grace was what? Greater. Greater than his sin. Earlier today we read these words from Isaiah 53. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him the chastisement that brought us peace was upon Him. And with His stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have all turned everyone to His own way. And the Lord has laid on Him, Jesus, the iniquity of us all. You know, this is one of the things that makes Christianity so attractive and unique. It's a religion for imperfect people. People who have failed. People who have... Fallen. I'm struck that all four, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, tell us the story of Peter's denials. Why do you suppose all four gospel writers wanted to make sure we knew this story? If I was writing the Bible and it wasn't written by the Holy Spirit, I don't think I would tell the world about how imperfect Christians are. But we are, because we don't have to hide our sin. We know of all people in the world that we are forgiven, that we are righteous in Christ by grace through faith. Have you denied the Lord? Have you caved to peer pressure? Yes. You have a fickle heart and so do I. We have feared man more than we have feared God at times. But I want you to know this morning that God's grace is free. It cost Jesus His life like Glenn or Clayton, Clayton said earlier. It cost Jesus everything, but it's free for all of us who repent and put our trust in Jesus. So my word to you this morning, actually God's word, is do what Peter did. Admit your sin. Believe Jesus died and paid the ultimate price for that sin. Commit your life to Him. If, you've, if you're not His yet, do it today that you might live above your guilt and shame in the joy of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. 
Lord, thank you so much that you are such a gracious Savior that when we blow it, as we all have, we are still recipients of the gospel promise that all who repent and believe are saved from wrath, saved from fear, guilt, shame, punishment. Thank you that the penalty of sin has been done in already. One day even the presence of sin will be gone. Until that day arrives, Lord, we pray that we will be people who seek to be holy, who seek to obey, but when we disobey, who run like Peter did to Jesus. Not to our works, not to our past, but to a Savior whose blood has paid it all. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.